0: This past summer, Stacy and I started off the summer with an idea. We wanted to get as many options for our family of things to do in Omaha, preferably free things because six kids is expensive. And we began to research, and Stacy found out that there's a park, Benson Park, that has a water park. And we thought that would be a blast. We'd have a lot of fun with that. And so we made the decision several weeks ago to go to Benson Park, kids in one hand and bathing suits in the other. And as we showed up, we had to struggle to find a parking spot, it was packed. There were people all over the place. There were ice cream vendors and ice cream trucks, and at all of the complimentary grilling stations, there were picnics taking place throughout the park, and there were soccer games that were going on. People were playing frisbee and football, and there were dogs being walked. And as we made our way over toward the water park, we came across a massive structure. That is a play set for the kids and we thought you know what we'll have them start off there before they get all wet and slippery So we began to swing and I don't know if i've told you this before But my family is just a little bit competitive and so we can't even go to a play structure without turning into american ninja warrior We begin to challenge each other. We create an obstacle course who can do what how fast how long all of that so there we are at the play structure before going to the water park, and it wasn't hard to notice that there was a gazebo just off the side of where we were playing at the park, and it was packed. I don't mean this as a hyperbole. I literally mean that there were well over a 100 people that were occupying this gazebo. There was a different ethnic group, a different nationality, different, different culture, and it was beautiful to see. And there was music coming from the gazebo, and there were these intrinsic smells that were pulling you in of all this amazing food and there was a table set up with presents as high and as wide as the table was and people were playing board games and there was laughter and I also couldn't help but notice how the the celebration was spilling out all over the park. That there were people that were a part of this celebration that were represented at the, the playground and at the water park and coming and going and so me being the passive observer that I was walked right up to the party and I started to take notice of what was going on and it was a birthday party it was a celebration of life now I never figured out this matriarch's age but it was clear that there was an elderly woman that they were celebrating they were celebrating her life they were celebrating her impact They were celebrating the significance of who she was to them. And she was having a great time. It was a brilliant celebration that impacted not only those who were in attendance, but those that were casually observing as they walked by. And it got me thinking a lot about what we celebrate. And today, in week six of our Power of One series, we're going to talk about the power of one celebration. That the power of one celebration in the Christian life is significant and that God can use it to change the trajectory of somebody's history for all eternity. Let me invite you to grab your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to raise your hand and allow one of my friends, one of our ushers, to gift you a Bible. Throw your hand up, let them know that you would need a Bible, you didn't bring it today, and they'll bring you one. It's yours to have and to keep. And as you get your Bible open, turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to spend all of our time today in verses 32 through 41. Acts chapter 2 verse 32 is where we will start. As you're turning there, let me begin our time in a word of prayer. As a song that we just sang declared, Lord, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and to move and to to do what only you're capable of doing. We ask that you would redeem this time, that you would use it for your good and your glory. Father, I pray now that as I as I have the privilege of preaching, that I would rightly divide your word in a way that honors you and that is clear and concise with authenticity and integrity. Father, I pray as your word goes out that it it would change us. But I pray that each one of us would begin now to make this decision to be hearers of the word and doers. Father, I pray that as we investigate how we celebrate new life in you, that you'll move in us, and that we'll respond out of joy and obedience. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift that is holy and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. And the church said together, amen. Luke is writing to Theophilus, and he's writing an account of what he has seen. Acts is also known as Acts of the Apostles. Miracles, signs, wonders, the establishment of the early church. He's writing after A.D. 63 and he's writing both first-hand account of what he is witnessing as well as third count, third-hand account of what he's hearing. As a physician and as an author, he pays close attention to detail. And Luke includes a bunch of really fun details in his writing, both in the Gospel of Luke as well as in Acts of the Apostles. And though not one of the original chosen, he has lived his ministry now in close proximity of the apostles and is a witness to what God is doing through the ministry of Jesus. And he writes about this and he shares it with both Jews and Gentiles alike. One of the things that he recalls is that after Jesus' final words here on earth, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, in Acts 1.8, and he ascends, that Peter and the other disciples will go, and they'll lock themselves in the upper room, and they'll wait as they were instructed to do for the Holy Spirit to fall upon them. And they'll be filled with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and they'll receive spiritual gifts, in particular, a signed gift known as tongues, or speaking in tongues. And the apostles will go out, and the disciples, and there are literally thousands that are gathered together and observing this. And they represent multiple people groups from varying regions and as they're there the apostles come out and the bible says that they were all speaking the message of god in foreign tongues to them but that were language that was understood by the masses it was a miracle god was moving through the apostles and through the disciples in miraculous way that they were able to clearly articulate this move of God in a language that they they didn't know that wasn't first to them. And unfortunately, it's not unique to the 21st century Western culture church that when God is on the move in the church and amazing things happen, there are naysayers on the outside looking in that are either ignorant to what's really going on or they're jealous and envious of, of what God is doing in the church and they begin to, they begin to murmur, they begin to, to, to cry out against the church, foul. That's not right. That's not normal. In fact, they begin to shout out, these men of God must be drunk. They're, they're liquored up. And Peter, looking at his friends, says, wait, are you serious? It is 9 o'clock in the morning. Can we agree that's a little too early to be blitzed? Then he goes on to give the first recorded sermon in the Acts of the Apostles. Peter's first address in the local church. And how God moves through this message is supernatural. And how I pray that God moves through this message this morning, may it be supernatural. We're going to pick up the, the back half of Peter's sermon. But I would encourage you, on the heels of today's message, to read Acts 1 and Acts 2 and even Acts 3 after what we're going to study today. But we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 32 through 41 together. Here is... Luke's account, in Peter's words, verse 32. Peter recalls to the audience as he preaches, God, God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witnesses of this. Peter is talking about this real time. We pastors who study theology and doctrine and go to seminary to be prepared to rightly divide the word of God, we have our own experiences and we have the education of others that has been passed down to us that we hold on to as we, as we communicate the message of Christ. I have my personal testimony to share my story with you, but I wasn't there 2,000 years ago when this was happening in real time. Peter, as he writes this eclectic group of individuals, is living this out real time. And he's saying, don't just take my word for it, but we collectively, we are all witnesses of what's taking place. The life, the 32 years of life and ministry that Jesus lived, the death at Golgotha, the place of the skull, the cross, the borrowed tomb. The resurrection, conquering death, that we might have eternal life. The celebration, the subsequent celebration. We're witnesses to this. This isn't just me. This is me and and my posse. We've all seen this. This is happening in real time. And and he's sharing with them what's what's taking place, what is taking place, and the significance not only in their lives but culturally. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we, we are all witnesses of this. This speaks to the power of one testimony, that our story may be the story that God uses to change someone's history for all eternity. Verse 33, Peter says, Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. Now, there are several things that we have to unpack here that are critical to our conversation this morning. The first of which is that Peter is going to appropriate Jesus Christ's position. And then he's going to follow follow it up with with a proof text or a supporting passage. He says, now he, Jesus Christ, is exalted to the, to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. Throughout scripture, we see in multiple other places seated at God's right hand. What's critical for our conversation that we understand is that to be seated at the right hand of God insinuates that the work that Jesus was doing is finished. That it, it, it's finished. There's nothing else to do. You can't already do what's been done. Jesus has done it. It's it's complete. And so now he's seated at the place of honor, at the right hand of the Father. This is also significant when you consider Jesus' disciples and they come to him and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray like John teaches his disciples to pray. And Jesus will give what we now know as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus introduces and then helps them understand that his very existence is God's, God's gift to humanity that we can experience the kingdom of heaven here and now. In his fulfillment, not only we get to experience, not only do we get to experience the things of the kingdom of heaven here and now, but we get to look forward to the things of heaven to come. This text here lets us know in subtle yet tremendously significant ways the work that Jesus has done, that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, that he came once and for all, for all. And Peter says, now he is exalted both in physical form and and in position he's exalted in praise he's exalted at the highest honor in heaven at God's right hand and the father as he has promised gave him the holy spirit to pour out upon us just as you see in here today i want to give you guys well this is free today you don't have to pay for this people will argue that they don't believe in the trinity theology because it's not in scripture well, I, I'm not going to disagree that the word Trinity isn't used in that, in that tense. But this is what we call proof text. You don't have to look past Genesis when it said in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and that the Holy Spirit was over the waters. We see proof over and over again of these three unique characteristics. One person yet uniquely different. And we've come up with clever ways in our culture to teach this. Water is one example. That it has three forms. Liquid form, a hard form, and a gas form. We've used eggs. The shell, the white, and the yolk. But I want to encourage you to to use this as a supporting proof text to demonstrate clearly here. And I I want to give you this as well. That in the original language, in the original Greek language, It's actually given in a singular, not plural. That the word used to describe God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is in the singular. So Peter says here, look, now he is exalted to the place of highest honor at God's right hand, and the Father, as he promised, gave him the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the promised Holy Spirit upon us to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. This This is the Trinity at work God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One unique. The Holy Spirit is what they were there to talk about. They had talked about Jesus. They had believed on God. But this Holy Spirit thing was unique to them. It was new to them. And what do people do when things are new to them, when they're ignorant and they don't understand? Either they they will jump all in and and they adopt it for themselves, or they will approach it, cautiously maybe optimistically or unfortunately there are a lot of people who will look on as naysayers and say well you must be demon possessed you might you this is crazy or or, or 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 they'll try to subdivide the spirit do you know what i mean by subdivide they try to subdivide the Spirit. They try to say the Spirit then and the Spirit now. The problem with that is if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and there's God, the Father, God, the Son, and Holy Spirit, then we can't subdivide the Holy Spirit, can we? If He never changes? So when we try to, when we try to make sense of this matter, when we try to make sense of, of what's going on, when we try to confine God in the proverbial box that we're comfortable with theologically and doctrinally, we will say things like, well, we're cessationists. We believe that the acts of the, the Holy Spirit were prevalent specifically to the sign gifts, miracles, signs, wonders, speaking in tongues, healing, that kind of stuff. That existed at the day of Pentecost and it was used in that context to validate the ministry of Jesus and the apostles as they began their work, but it ceased on the day of Pentecost, or it ceased with the early church. Okay. But then tell me how some decades later the Apostle Paul is writing about spiritual gifts. He says, I wish all of you were like me. I wish that all of you spoke in tongues, yet I'd rather you speak 15 intelligible words than a thousand words in tongues. And the Apostle Paul goes on to talk about all of the gifts. And do you know what he calls the greatest gift? He doesn't say preaching is the greatest gift or teaching or exhortation. Healing is the greatest gift or words of knowledge or speaking in tongues. He says the gift that we've all received that we all must freely give is the gift of love. And so pardon me if I'm not willing to put into a box that with which I can't understand. But I don't see it supported in Scripture that those spiritual gifts cease. Now what I won't do is I won't take it to a hyper charismatic perspective either. I won't suggest on any of you or superimpose on us that the first sign of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that we all must speak in tongues because that's what the disciples did. But that's not true either. They had the Holy Spirit with them while Jesus was with them. And he gave them spiritual gifts, didn't he? He sent them out two by two. To do what? To heal the sick, cause the blind to see. He did all kinds of miracles with them. Those are spiritual gifts. He gave them the gift of exhortation. He gave them the gifts to speak and teach. This baptism of the Holy Spirit was a gift to them, and it was an evidence to the community at large. So far be it for me to hyperimpose or superimpose a, a hypercharismatic Christianity on us that says, well, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit if you don't speak in tongues. I mean, the only time that I know that I've spoken in tongues is when I really get going up here. Or <laughs> my kids make me really mad. But my wife interprets, Run. Verse 34, here's a proof text Peter uses. For David himself never ascended into heaven. Now he's talking about the physical form. Yet he said, kind of a cool fact. He's going to quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. Did you know that Psalm 110 is the most recited Old Testament verse in the New Testament? In a variety of ways. He recites from David... In Psalm 110, verse 1, where David said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. A couple of really cool things that we, if we're not careful, we would just glance over and, and, and miss, but they're really cool. Do you notice how in that first line of that first sentence, the Lord said to my Lord? Look, at, look carefully at the text. Do you notice that the first Lord is in all capital letters? Capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. With the second being capital L, followed by three lowercase O-R-D. Anytime we read in Scripture where Lord is all capitalized, we should take that to mean God creator. The creator of the universe. The one in which if we don't worship, the rocks will cry out. That God. The Alpha and the Omega, that God. Who was, is, and forever will be, that God. Anytime we see Lord followed by lowercase lettering, It is a sign of honor and position. But they called the king's lords. At your service, my lord. Two things that I think are critical here. The first is that David recognized his spot in the kingdom. David's the king of Israel. And yet, even amongst himself as a king and in his own kingdom, he places God on the throne. How many of us live our lives with the inverse, where we live as the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D of our own life, and we allow God to play second fiddle or a second chair or back seat to us. That we treat God more as a genie in a bottle there to answer our greatest wishes at our beck and call. David, the king of Israel, God's anointed, a man after God's own heart said, let's keep this in perspective. The Lord said to my Lord... He is greater than I am. He is greater than me. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand. Sit represents completion until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Verse 36 now. Verse 36, we have some responsibility in this. Scripture, we've talked about this, both prescriptive and descriptive. This was not prescriptive to us, but it describes the nature of what God has called us to as Christians, which means we need to learn from this. We have some responsibilities in light of what we're learning today. We, ha- we have some responsibilities in light of what we're learning today. Head knowledge builds up, or puffs up, but, but applied knowledge builds up. And I want to build up your life today. I want to build up the body of Christ today. I want to build up the church, capital C church. Not country Bible church, but the church. I want to build up our community in Christ today. So let's make sure that we are really paying attention and not just being hearer of the word, but a doer as well. Here's the response. Verse 36, Peter says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. How would we let everyone know? Peter said, let everybody in Israel know that Jesus Christ who you crucified is both Lord and Messiah. How would we let them know? By telling them, this is the power of our testimony that our story has the potential to change somebody else's history for all eternity. He didn't say, if, it, if, it, if it's well with you or if it, if it works out with your timing, if, if you feel convinced you should do this. He said, in light of what you now know, let everyone in Israel, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, let everyone in Israel know what you know. Let them in on your secret, let them know, let, let them in on your life change. Let them in on what I believe, and this is what I believe, that every number has a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God. And at the end of this story, we're going to read about 3,000 numbers that gave their life to Jesus and were baptized. Let them know. Let all of Israel know. How do you let them know? How you live your life is an indicator. The words that come out of your mouth is an indicator. What you place on social media is an indicator. How you interact relationally with people, These these are all platforms. These are all platforms for sharing your faith for being a witness, for being a testimony, for giving a firsthand account, a firsthand account that I know that I once was a wrecked, messed up, jacked up dude. Jesus met me, and I may not look a lot different, but I'm telling you, I am brand new on the inside. God has transformed my life, and it's changing everything about my life. Who I was is no longer who I am. These are platforms that God has given us to share our story. Peter says, let everybody in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus. Now lean in, too. This is, this is going to, I want you to feel the levity of this. Whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. When we read this, we almost read this with a get out of jail free card. He wrote this 2,000 years ago. Jesus died over 2,000 years ago. I wasn't there when Jesus was on trial for three different times. I wasn't there when Pilate came out and said, hey, it's the annual celebration. We release one of the prisoners. Who do you want to let go? Barabbas, this murderous, riotous man, or, or Jesus, this gentle soul they call king of the Jews. Who, who do you want to let go? And they start screaming out, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And then Pilate says, well, what do you, what do you, what do you want to do with Jesus? And they say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate will walk over and he'll wash his hands, which is also significant. We actually, as you study baptism, the word baptism, baptismo, is what we're talking about today. But there's actually seven different baptisms that are studied in scripture. One of which is Pilate washing his hands of any, he's, he's of any responsibility of what's about to happen. So we look at this and we say, we weren't, we weren't there. We weren't chanting with the crowds. We weren't there as Jesus walked by uh, uh, down, the, down the streets on the road up to Golgotha. We weren't there. But let's examine for just a moment a couple of things and see how it all ties together. The Bible says that each one of us is uniquely created in the very image of God. That we were knit together in our mother's womb before the creation. That God knows us and he calls us by name. Plan and purpose for our lives. Jesus on the cross will say, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he will commit His spirit into the very hands of God. What was He asking forgiveness for? For their sins. And who is them? Them includes anyone who has been separated from God because of their sins. Because God can have no part in sin. So Jesus came. In substitutionary atonement, he gave himself up on the cross for all sinners, for all time. His blood, the final atonement, propitiation, making a way where there was no other way. And who did he do it for? He did it for the world. Who is them? Me and you. Let me read that again. Peter says, so let everybody in Israel know for certain, give them a testimony about how God has changed your life, the same Jesus that you crucified. Don't let his death be in vain. Do you see the levity here? He says, to be both Lord and Messiah. Verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to the other apostles, brothers, brothers, What should we do? Two things here that I want to point out. Number one, (laughs) I love that Luke recorded how Peter's words pierced their hearts. But it wasn't Peter. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and I want to revisit it. Many of you have noticed that when I finish praying before every sermon, I pray the same prayer at the end. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift, holy and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This is David's prayer in Psalm 1914. It's not unique to me, but I want it to be true of me. As I've been tasked with the responsibility of rightly dividing the word of God, I want to do it with authenticity and with integrity. But more than all of that, more than all of my preparations, more than all of my studies, more than anything that I can put down on paper, I cannot do what is reserved for the work of the Holy Spirit alone to do. And I pray above all things that I will be little more than conduit that God will use to pierce our hearts, to pierce our hearts. One of the greatest compliments that I have received in my time of preaching and in particular here at Country Bible Church over the last three years, I really appreciate it when people come up after church and they say it in jest, but they'll say things like, Pastor, you might as well have just used my name when you were preaching. You don't have to preach at me. We could have had this conversation over coffee and saved 40 minutes. That's not not me. Truth be told, I'm preaching about what I'm going through and you're just as jacked up as I am. (laughs) Peter's words, because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, pierced the hearts of the people listening. And how did they respond? What must we do? This is a cultural issue. They've grown up with the Talmud, many of them, with the Torah, with rules and regulations that clearly outline what they should do and what they shouldn't do. They, they know the restrictions, and it becomes a way of life for them. Okay, I get that I shouldn't work on the Sabbath. I'll take a day off. And the whole not stealing your neighbor's stuff, and okay, I can do that, and not murdering, all right, and not not committing adultery and not taking the Lord's name in vain and not cussing and not lying and not gossiping I mean we get those things those are black and white those are things that we can do and we appreciate that in our culture don't we we learn from an early age how to be self sufficient my wife reminded me yesterday how self sufficient all of our children are we were at my daughter Ryan's soccer game and as we were there God taunted me with a six-month-old baby boy in the grass on a blanket rolling over. And Stacy looked over, and she saw that baby, and she turned back to me with my four-year-old baby in her arms, and she said, oh, I just can't wait to be a grandmother. (laughs) I said, get behind me, woman. What she's saying is that we are much closer to being grandparents than we are parents. And again, publicly, I pray childbirth on her again. Lord, give us a child. <laughs> we'll adopt, too. Pastor Mark walked by in between services. I was holding some friends of ours have a, have a baby boy, Roman. And uh, it's, it's crazy. I've known his dad since he was a seventh grader. And now he's all grown up with a baby of his own. And I'm holding Roman. And Mark's like, oh, you idiot. Don't give, don't give him a baby. You're not going to get it back. Ah) <laughs> uh. Pierced their hearts, and they, like a child learning to be an adult, wanted to be self sufficient. I remember my kids used to say, No, my do it. And I'd say, My do it better be fast because we got to go. <laughs> my daughter, Brianne, the, the, the last one, would get so mad if you buckled her car seat for her. And so we had to plan to leave five minutes early, or I'd just make her mad because I'm doing it. No, my do it. We learn to be self-sufficient at an early age and we, we want to rely on our own strength and our own abilities on what we can do, what we bring to the table. And so they go to Peter and the other apostles and say, what must we do? And Peter says, you can't do what's already been done. You cannot do what's already been done. But he gives him this. He gives them this encouragement. Verse 38, Peter replied, each of you must repent. Now what does it mean to repent? Repent simply means to turn away from. To go in the opposite direction. You must repent of your sins. Repent of the things of the flesh. He's saying, turn away from pornography. Don't try to go around it. Don't try to turn a little bit from it. Literally and radically, turn away from it. Turn away from alcohol. Turn away from substance abuse. Turn away from extramarital affairs. Turn away from gossip. Turn away from gluttony. Turn away from the things that, that, that you're justifying, that you're trying to, to, to make a, a loophole for, that you're doing. Turn away from them. The problem is that in our culture, we tell people to stop doing something, but we don't give them the appropriate alternative. Let me give you an example. In my 42 years of dieting, and I'm only 41, when I was early on in my, in my weight loss journey, People were really good at telling me what I shouldn't eat. But nobody ever instructed me on how I should eat. They'd say, well, you keep eating like that, and you're going to keep looking like that. Oh, man, you have the gift of encouragement. Praise God. You keep talking like that, you're not going to be able to speak. It wasn't until my friend Becky Griggs came along, who had been through the same journey that I was on, and she said... If you keep eating like this, you're going to look like this. But instead of eating like this, you need to, you need to eat like this. Replace that with this. That leads to death. This leads to, to life. That is empty calories. This is nutrition that feeds your body so that you can be about the things that God's called you to be about. And she gave me instructions on how to, how to eat and how to exercise. How to plan my meals out. How to stop going to fast food restaurants. How to take alternative routes so I didn't pass the ones that tempted me most. How to stop justifying my junk. Oh, my favorite was I was on the Atkins diet for about 30 years. I would go and I would order three double Whoppers with extra cheese because it was all protein. And I heard now that Burger King has a not burger, burger. Whatever. Whatever. He doesn't just say, stop what you're doing. He says, each of you must repent, turn from the ways of the world, turn from your sins, and turn to God. When you're tempted to look at the pornography, turn to the scriptures. When you're tempted to overeat, turn to your discipleship groups or your life groups. When you're tempted to say things you shouldn't, turn to prayer. When you're tempted to be about the things of the world, get your butt to church. Turn from the world and turn to God. And then he says, and be baptized, baptismo, which means immersed in water. Now culturally, they were very familiar with superstitions where water was concerned. Multiple baptisms. They actually had this pool there. They called it a healing pool uh, where, where people by, by the, I mean, hundreds would gather at this pool and they would wait for this, this, this supernatural spirit to to, to to cross over the waters and they would enter into the water and, and they believed that if it happened at the right time and at the right place that they would be healed and Even Jesus teaches about the significance and the symbolism of water. Revelation 3.16, Jesus uses water as a teaching example for the churches. He says, either you're hot or you're cold, but if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And what he means is that, (laughs) excuse me. On a hot day, it's nice to have a cold, refreshing beverage to quench your thirst. And on a cold day, it's nice to have a hot beverage to to, to warm you up. But that if you're lukewarm, and what he's referring to is the aqueduct that they had carved out that provided water, but that it was a stagnant water in the end, and it was a lukewarm water in the end, and it was a breeding ground for bacteria, and Jesus was literally, when he says that, it it is a physical reaction that when you drink that bacteria that has no value add, that you have no choice, the recourse physically in your body is to to cast it out or to vomit it or to spit it out. There's water all throughout the text, all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. So they're leaning in when he says, and be baptized. But now listen to how he says be baptized. Baptized means to be immersed or to go in and to come out. It represents death and life. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, this is an identifying marker, You're you're, you're now taking on for your own the identity of Christ, and you're doing it very publicly. When I was adopted, my parents submitted paperwork, and then they had my last name changed, and it was very public. There was a public celebration, and when I was adopted, I took on the characteristics and the quality traits of my family. When my great-grandmother passed away, she wasn't my biological great-grandmother, Many of you were here a couple of years ago when I preached about my grandfather who died in the Vietnam War. That wasn't my biological grandfather. That was my adopted dad's father. But his mother, when she passed away into her 90s, she left an inheritance to to 10 of her great-grandchildren, one of which involved me. And do you know how much different my inheritance was to the other nine great-grandchildren? It wasn't. Because I was adopted into the family and she treated me as one of her own. And I took on the last name. Friends, I have had four last names Since birth, I was born with the last name. The given name was Thorson. I don't know any Thorson, but that was my biological mother's husband before she had divorced him and lived her reckless life. And so she just gave me her maiden or her last name at that time. Then it was changed to her maiden name, which is McKay. And then she got married when I was eight. And so then I carried the name Cryley. My biological father's last name is Ford. And when I was adopted, they were giving me the name Anderson. And because of the adoption and them bringing me into their family... I share what Ryan and Kristen and Sarah and Jordan and Emily share, which is when my parents die, we'll have a lot of debt and a lot of pictures that have never been developed that we've got to go through. But in seriousness, I share this family with them. And do you know what my mother and my father never did post-adoption? They never introduced their children and then their adopted son. And it was the best thing ever. My biological excuse me, my my adopted mother is 4 foot 9. Many of you've met her, you've seen her. She's 4 foot 9. She's from England, massive hair, bigger personality. And she's pretty young. And when they would see her, I was when I was I was adopted at 16 and my 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 family were, were 32 years old. They took a 16-year-old on as their own. And when they would see me with these other kids, you know my mom never said when they said, well, how is your son so tall and so big and he looks so different than the rest of them? She said, we feed him different. <laughs> she never made me feel like I didn't belong. That's what baptism does, is it, is, is it brings us into a, a community of others and it unites us and it identifies us with Christ. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But when you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you're literally taking on Christ Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins. I don't have time to go into that. I really want to, but I don't have time to right now. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promises to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Friends, this is another verse that's been taken out of context. Jeremiah twenty 11. We've talked about this recently. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Awesome verse. Who wouldn't want that as their life verse? Plans to prosper me and not to harm me? Plans to give me a hope in a future? But when you put it in culture and context, it is written to the Israel people, and they are in Babylon living as exiles under extreme persecution. When you understand that, that, that's who God was talking to, and that that was the context, we want all of, we want all the benefits. We want all the blessings without all the baggage. We want all the, The celebration without all the devastation. All of a sudden that life verse takes on a little bit of a different meaning, doesn't it? Here's another one. Here's another one where where when you read it, if you read it out of culture and context, out of the original language, it says here, this promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, which is significant. In other words, it's for the whole world. All who have been called by the Lord our God. People want to hyper-focus in on that word called. And they want to talk about predestination. And they want to say that there are some who are haves and there are some who are have-nots. There are some that God will predestine and some that God won't. My problem with that is when you keep with the context of the entire Bible. From the Shema. I am the Lord your God. I, I, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will, I will walk amongst you. The Lord our God, the Lord is one all the way up into the New Testament in John 3.16. And if you know this, say it with me in just a second. For God so loved the that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the but to save it. That is all-encompassing. That is inclusive speak. That God wishes that none would perish, but that everyone would have everlasting life. I will not argue that you are predestined. It's called prevenient grace. God at work in you through the power of the Holy Spirit before you know it. But I will argue who's predestined. You are. 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 Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, male, female. We are all a part of God's plan and his kingdom plan. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Praise God. You are predestined. But you also have the choice to respond. He says here, this promise is to you and it's to your children and even to the Gentiles. It's now made available when it wasn't before in a way like never before. All who have been called by the Lord our God. Verse 40 and 41. Let's finish this out, church. Then Peter, continued to preach for a long time. See, proof text. I can preach as long as I want. <laughs> proof text that Peter... Who continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. People want to look at that and say, so we do have a responsibility to save ourselves, not for eternity, but from stupidity. That's what he says. He doesn't say, save yourselves for eternity. He says, save yourselves from stupidity, this crooked generation. He says, what do light and darkness have in common? What do life and death have in common? What do God and Baal have in common? God can have no part in sin. Why would you then live like a sinner? If you're free in Christ and you're free indeed. why would you go on living like a slave to sin? The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. The Bible says be in the world, not of the world. What Peter is saying here is, look, if you're going to live, live for Christ. Don't continue living recklessly in reckless communities and expect to, to be sanctified. That doesn't, that doesn't go hand in hand. You're called to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So be careful, be mindful, be intentional who you allow to speak into your life. Be careful where you invest yourself, where you invest your time. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized in the water, out of the water, and added to the church What day? Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church. What day? About 3,000 in all. Let me share with you a couple of things that I wrote down about baptism. Let me start with what baptism is not. Baptism is not the means to salvation, the replacement of salvation, and it is not necessary for salvation. You catch that? Let me read that again. Baptism is not the means to salvation, the replacement of salvation, and it is not necessary for salvation. So, what is baptism? I'm glad you asked. There are a lot of things that baptism is, but I wrote down five that I want to share with you today. Five things. If you're a note taker, I have provided proof texts that are not going to come up on the screen, but I'm going to give them to you, and I encourage you to write them down and read them on your own. Here's the first thing that baptism is baptism is an act of worship. Baptism is an act of worship. Look at Acts 8, 26-39. And these aren't the only supporting scriptures. These are just the ones that I, that I wrote for you to write down. Acts 8, 26-39. It's an act of worship. It's an act of adoration. It's a celebration. It's the power of one celebration. And when you go public celebrating by being immersed, by going into the water, representing the death and coming out, representing new life that the old has gone and the new has come. When you, when you worship, worship God in this facet, others, like my family and I, when we went to, when we went to Benson Park and we saw the celebration, they take notice. They pay attention. There's a party. We're celebrating new life. What Satan meant for death and destruction, God will now use for his good and your glory, and for his glory, for your good and his glory. Baptism is, a, is an act of worship. It's worthyship. He's worthy of celebration, isn't he? That 100-plus people that gathered felt so highly of this woman and the impact that she had in their lives that they gathered and they gave her gifts and they gave her food and they gave her beverages and they gave her music and they told stories. And it was a celebration because of the impact that she had in their lives. How much more then should we celebrate the impact that Jesus has had in ours? Let's stop singing songs like we're at a memorial service and start singing songs like we're at a celebration service. So the first thing baptism is, it's, a, it's an act of worship. Second thing, write this down. Baptism is an act of obedience. Baptism is an act of obedience. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, Jesus didn't just tell him to do it. Guess how he started his public ministry? He was in the desert, 40 days, tempted in every way, never sinned. Came out and he was baptized. Jesus says, I'm going to set the example, I'm going to be the standard, and I want you to do it as well. Be baptized. Baptism is an act of obedience. Baptism is a public declaration. It's no different than marriage. When my wife and I stood together and we made a declaration to God, to ourselves, and to others, to having to hold for better, for worse, until death do us part. Ha ha, I got you, you can't leave me now, sucker. And we wear rings and we have kids. I mean, there's all kinds of things that our life represents that we made this commitment, this covenant to one another. It's a declaration. Here's the proof text, Colossians 2, 21, Mark 16, 16, which says, believe and be baptized. It's a declaration. You're making a declaration. You're saying, I am his and he is mine. I commit myself. Go back to Psalm 110, verse 1, when David said, the Lord said to my Lord, he is my God, he is my Savior. Two more things that baptism is. Baptism identifies us with Christ. Acts 2.38, which we studied today. It identifies us with Christ. Who we are because of whose we are. And the last thing I want to share with you is that baptism unites us with others. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. That we are one body in Christ. That we are one in Christ. It unites us. We have something in common. We get to celebrate together. Let me just clear up a couple of things about how we practice baptism at Country Bible Church and how we read the the scriptures. We believe in believer's baptism. We practice what we call believer's baptism. There are whole systems of theology and denominations, churches, structures that will baptize infants. And I'm not here to cast stones at them. And I don't have time to go into the historical background of that. But I will tell you that when people come to me and they say, Pastor, what do you think about baptizing babies? My only argument is show me in scripture. Make sense of it in scripture. And they say, well, what about Solomon? He was taken to the temple. He was baptized. No, 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 no. Solomon was taken to the temple. He was dedicated as a fulfilled promise to a woman who couldn't have children and said, if you give me this, I'll give him to you. I'll commit his life to you. It was a dedication. So if you were baptized as a child, according to how I read scripture, I would, I would argue that it was more of a dedication and more on behalf of your parents who said, it's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to raise them up in the ways of the Lord. We're going to teach them how to pray. We're going to teach them how to worship. We're going to teach them how to give. We're going to teach them how to serve. We're going to teach them how to love Jesus, how to love others. Does not it mean it's bad that you were baptized as a kid? No. Doesn't mean you have to have a do over? No. Doesn't mean it didn't take the first time? I mean, look, we'll talk about that in just a second. So, so, so how do you argue that? What, what do we believe about baptism? In Jewish culture, they have what they call a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, which is, lets them uh, celebrate the coming of age. It's age 13. In Latino cultures, they have what they call a quinceanera, which is a celebration of a young woman or young lady becoming a woman. These are symbols of celebration and of accountability, reaching ages of accountability. We see in scripture, the only time we see in scripture anybody being baptized is at an age of accountability, what what that means is that they were able to understand, articulate why they believed what they believed, why they wanted to be baptized, and make that decision for themselves. People want to put a a, a tag, an age tag on, on children. In fact, churches will come up with whole classes and courses, coursework you have to take in order to be baptized. That makes me mad. You say, well, it's the only responsible thing to do, pastor. You're getting people who get baptized that don't know what they're doing. Really? Jesus said, believe and be baptized. Last week we learned about God doing all kinds of crazy miracles, and it said that Lydia, when she responded to the word of God and the work of God, what did she do? She was baptized. She and her household. And what about, what about the centurion guard who was standing there for Paul and Silas as, as, as a jailer, and they, he received the, the word and the work of the Lord? What did he do? That day he believed and was baptized. If scripture didn't come up with a four, six, eight, twelve, fifteen part class on what baptism is, how to do it, what modes of baptism, what. Who am I to do that? What I know that scripture clearly teaches is that if you believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, turn from your sins, turn to God, and get wet. Oh, and when should you do it? what day? People who ask, people who say, and I'm not making fun of you. I'm not, I'm not making fun of you. I'm not, I promise. Well, shouldn't I go home and pray about it? What? Believing in being baptized is like saying, should I pray about taking my next breath? It's just the natural next step. No, the Bible doesn't say believe and then pray about whether you should be baptized well, I didn't come prepared to church today to be baptized, pastor. I've never been baptized. Or, 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 or I was baptized, but I didn't really commit my life to Christ back then. Is it, is it wrong if I get baptized again? No. I've never told anybody who wants me to renew their vows. Sorry, I'm not doing it. You said 25 years ago you loved each other. Has it changed? Nope. Good. No, you want to recommit to your marriage? I'll stand right here and say, you better do it again. You better do it again. You recommit your life to Christ? You don't have to, but I want to encourage you, Get wet. You were baptized as a kid and you had no say in it. But today you declare that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Get wet. So here's what we've done for you. Because my staff is smart. We've taken all the guesswork out of this for you. If you have believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is your day. You can be baptized. We want you to be baptized. We have provided towels for you. If you get baptized, sign up now. Today you get a free t-shirt. Today, today, today. We have, we, have, we have fresh clothes for you. We have a free T-shirt that we give you to be baptized in and that you can keep as an example, as a, just as a celebration afterward. We have got ladies, uh, without going into detail, we've thought of everything. We're prepared. Guys, we have gel for your hair. <laughs> Older guys, we have pocket combs. Bald guys... Whatever. We literally, we've thought of everything. I promise you, we've thought of everything. Well, shouldn't I go home and get my towel? We have those two. What about people to celebrate with? When you're baptized, you're baptized into a new family. We've got a family ready to celebrate with you. So here's what I want you to do. We have six people signed up to be baptized already. But if you are here this morning, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't sign up to be baptized, we're ready for that too. Pastor Austin is going to take the team and we're going to lead, lead, lead us out in a, in a song of celebration here in just a minute. Here's what I want you to do. If you want to be baptized today, if you're not one of the, the six people that signed up in advance, but you want to be baptized today, get up, go through those back doors. In fact, Pastor Cody's right there. You can't miss him. Cody, just wave, say, Hi, good morning, church. Hey, come on. <laughs> Cody will give you directions on where to go to get baptized, we'll get you set up. We'll take you out to the Connection Center. We'll get you set up. We'll get you dressed. We'll get you changed. We'll get you, we'll get you set up. We got camera on site. We're going to take pictures. It's going to be an amazing time. It's going to be an amazing celebration. Did you know that every number has a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God? And did you know that when you celebrate your story, your story might be the story that God uses to change somebody else's history for all eternity? So what are you waiting for?